Do you ever feel like life is just one problem after another? You finally feel like maybe there's a break and then bam, another problem. This is how it is for many of us, but there is a better way to respond. A way of responding that brings greater ease into your life and returns some of the energy that the problems drain from you. We are hosting a free live masterclass on Sunday, February 27th called Learn the Spiritual Habit to Unlock Energy and Ease in Your Life, even if each day seems to bring a fresh pile of problems. In it, I will teach you how to tap into the resources that are already within you so that life feels less like a never-ending fight and more like an ever-evolving dance. You will learn the number one source of unhappiness that drains your energy and keeps you feeling stuck and a simple mindset shift you can make right away so that life doesn't feel like such a constant struggle. This will be a live event and you'll have a chance to interact with me and with each other. I've really grown to love these community events where we get to meet each other and deepen our connections. I hope that you can become part of that. Go to oneufeed.net slash live to learn more and register for this free event. Again, that's oneufeed.net slash live, and I really would love the chance to meet you and see you there. What you'll find in time when you really, truly can let go of the various things that we otherwise are constantly reaching for and grasping, (laughs) you'll find a kind of freedom. Welcome to The One You Feed. Throughout time, great thinkers have recognized the importance of the thoughts we have. Quotes like, garbage in, garbage out, or you are what you think, ring true. And yet, for many of us, our thoughts don't strengthen or empower us. We tend toward negativity, self-pity, jealousy, or fear. We see what we don't have instead of what we do. We think things that hold us back and dampen our spirit. But it's not just about thinking. Our actions matter. It takes conscious, consistent, and creative effort to make a life worth living. This podcast is about how other people keep themselves moving in the right direction, how they feed their good wolf. claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond but at diamonds direct we beg to differ have you ever met a mother strong radiant timeless this mother's day give her the gift that meets her match with diamond jewelry starting at 200 plus diamonds directs exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at diamonds direct diamonds direct your love our passion Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining us. Our guest on this episode is Steve Hawken. Steve was ordained a Zen priest in 1979, and in 1989 he received Dharma Transmission, or the formal endorsement to teach, from Jikai Danin Katagiri Roshi. He's the author of several books on Buddhism, science, and philosophy. These include his most popular book, Buddhism Plain and Simple. 
In his most recent book, The Grand Delusion, he applies breakthrough Eastern insights to seemingly indelible problems in Western science and philosophy. In 1997, he founded Dharma Field Meditation and Learning Center in Minneapolis, where he continues to serve as senior teacher. Hi, Steve. Welcome to the show. Hello, Eric. Yeah, it's good to be here. It's nice to have you back on again. Today, we're going to be talking about your book called The Grand Delusion, What We Know But Don't Believe. But before we do that, we'll start like we always do with the parable. In the parable, there's a grandparent who's talking with their grandchild, and they said, in life, there are two wolves inside of us that are always at battle. One is a good wolf, which represents things like kindness and bravery and love. And the other is a bad wolf, which represents things like greed and hatred and fear. And the grandchild stops and thinks about it for a second and looks up at their grandparent and says, well, which one wins? And the grandparent says, the one you feed. So I'd like to start off by asking you what that parable means to you in your life and in the work that you do. Yeah, it is an interesting story, and it does make you think a bit. But I would say many things come to mind, but one really kind of stuck off for me this time. In terms of what you feed and which one you feed, I, th I would say, you know, you, we should feed them both. And, uh, but it depends on what you feed them. And you mentioned mm -hmm. kindness, that the good wolf shows kindness. And we can show kindness, uh, to the bad wolf if we can identify the bad wolf. Uh, but sometimes it's difficult to know which is which. But I would say, uh, we can feed them both kindness <laughs> and caring and love. And uh, whichever one might be getting out of hand there a bit, um, if, if they know that someone cares and is giving them some kindness and uh, feeding them some good nourishing food, I think that might be the best best way to go. I love that. I don't recall anybody saying, you know, it's more about what you feed them. That's, that's an interesting perspective. And although we've had, you know, plenty of people that we've talked about, you know, showing kindness towards your bad wolf, which I think is important, but really thinking specifically about what the content of the food is, uh, is a really interesting idea. All right, let's go into your latest book called The Grand Delusion, What We Know But Don't Believe. Could I stop you there just a second? Yeah. The actual title that I wrote, the subtitle, was What We Know But Can't Believe, but that seemed a little harsh for the, uh, the reader just coming, approaching the book uh, right off. I'm hoping that when the reader gets through the book, uh, they might have that understanding to some degree. But it, it, we don't believe it, uh, what we know, <laughs> because we can't. Mm. And uh, I explain all of that in the book. You know, So really the title would be What We Know But Can't Believe, which uh, probably seems like an odd thing uh, when you first approach it. But it was pretty... Uh, Strange, I think, for the, you know, the publisher probably uh, would have had a hard time with that word, so we changed it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think we can talk about why we can't believe the truth. Uh, having read the book, I understand what you're saying. We may have to go step by step to get there. But let's start with the title, The Grand Delusion. What is The Grand Delusion? Well, The Grand Delusion um, basically is that we devoutly believe in non-emptiness, as uh, Nagarjuna would say. Uh, we believe in substantiality. We believe that things are whole and complete uh, entities unto themselves, separate and apart from everything else. And of course, uh, I myself, for each of us, uh, I myself am one of these things. And that puts us in a pretty uh, difficult situation much of the time. <laughs> We're, now we have to look out for ourselves and try to get what we can. And, and greed and anger, these things begin to appear in the mind. And that's uh, pretty uh, 
a common experience for us human beings. It's a delusion. The delusion is in thinking that there's actually something to this, that there's some actual substantiality here. And what I try to show in the book is uh, that things aren't quite as substantial as they appear to be. But I also stress the point, and some people have missed this, even though I repeatedly say it in the book, that um, I'm not advocating nothingness. This clearly isn't nothing. But it has a lack of uh, substantiality about it. But when we open up to this and realize this uh, now, other things that are very puzzling for us, such as what is mind, what is consciousness, uh, this all begins to uh, clear up. We begin to see it in a radically different way. Hmm. And the hard problem was identified by uh, David Chalmers, yeah, and uh, back in the early 90s, uh, is how do we get uh, subjective experience from just uh, electrochemical processes in the brain and this sort of thing. And uh, that's the hard problem. That's the one that hasn't been resolved. And people, uh, they can deal with the easy problems, so to speak, which aren't so easy themselves. But that's because these problems can be dealt with. The hard problem is something that we're imagining, and we're imagining it along with uh, the idea that we have substantiality in the first place, or that, say, mind comes from matter. That's a belief. There's no evidence for that whatsoever. There's a lot of uh, coincidental kind of things, but there's no actual proof proof of such a thing. And I try to supply in the book all sorts of things that might help us to doubt that a bit. Yeah, let's start there. So the grand delusion being substantiality. And you talk early on about a question that Bertrand Russell famously posed that has been out there a lot, which is, why is there something rather than nothing? Yeah, It is perhaps the most basic existential question you could have. Why is there anything here at all? versus nothing, right? Yeah. And so you talk about your hard questions, right? This is about as hard a question as you get. What's your answer to that? How do you respond to that question? Well, again, it's based on the assumption that we actually have something. And uh, that's kind of where I start with the book. In chapter two, we get to that point, and uh, I spend the rest of the book then just showing why this might be the case. I realize right off, of course, that's an absurd thing to say, that we don't have something. But what I mean is we don't have substantiality. And, that, and that's uh, really what I'm saying. Uh, of course, right away, it, it seems like I'm, and people will take it this way, that I'm saying that, well, if we don't have something, then we must have nothing. But that's uh, kind of a false uh, dichotomy there. Uh, clearly, this isn't nothingness. It's just plain obvious. There's sight and sound and feeling and color and yeah. <laughs> taste and flavor and thought and feeling. So this isn't nothing. But to think that there's an actual distinct uh, separateness and um, ego or self but belonging to things, including ourselves, this is actually an illusion. And to believe it, then, then, then that's probably the, the grand illusion, mm -hmm. <laughs> just these things in terms of substance. And uh, delusion, the grand delusion is to believe to believe that and to carry on as if this were the case. And I try to give some indication as to how this entangles us in all sorts of suffering. In fact, uh, virtually all existential suffering can be done away with in a flash if we could see through the, the illusion of substantiality. Yeah, and I want to pivot to an idea that is late in the book for a second, because I think it helps listeners to hear what we're saying and maybe settle down a little bit and lean in a little bit more. And it's really the idea of two truths. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. So share a little bit about what we mean by the two truths. As soon as we start talking about like, well, the self is not here in the way we think it is. And it, all of a sudden people start going, but hang on. No, I mean, I still got a mortgage to pay. I still got it. And you're like, yes, of course you do. Right. So I think recognizing that there's two truths that are coexistent at the exact same time helps us to go, oh, OK, we're not denying one of them. Right. This is very important. It's a subtle thing. It's not easy to see. And uh, I spent uh, years approaching it before suddenly I realized (laughs) Well, I was mainly uh, studying Nagarjuna and I suddenly was able to see what he was uh, what he was getting at. Because using my rational mind, which is very logical and uh, uh, I happen to be kind of a logic sort of guy. But so I, I delve into something here that doesn't require the normal logic uh, that we follow, Aristotelian logic or Boolean logic or any kind of other kind of logic you might want to find. And in doing that, uh, and then it's very difficult to see what is taking place here. And then we fall into this uh, grand delusion. Yeah, the thing is, that we're not talking about, uh, like, well, like right here in front of me, I have a cup. Where do I hold it? There it is. We might speak of it in Zen. We might talk about that the cup is empty. Well, it's got water in it. We can say, well, yeah, yeah, of course it's got water in it. But the cup itself, uh, there's no particular uh, you know, thing there about it at all. And that just seems like a very uh, strange thing to say. And yet it, there's all sorts of ways we can go in and take a close look at what we're uh, attributing substance to. And uh, that to say there's a particular cup, it's made of atoms, it's, which are made of uh, quarks and uh, electrons and things like this, and you you keep moving in. And eventually, we don't seem to have any particle, any substance there at all. And yet here's the cup. And so there's like two truths right there. Yes, we have a cup in a conventional way. I put it down here before we started so I could get some water if I need it. You know, so that's uh, one truth, conventional truth, relative truth. But then if we really get down to it exactly, then what exactly is the cup? And um, as we go in and look for it, physically, we go in and look for it, it seems to turn into no particular thing at all. And, uh, and there's other ways we can we can look at it as well. It can have all kinds of uses that might take us beyond what we might commonly think uh, that a cup uh, has. But even when we get down for a close look here, we actually don't seem to have uh, anything at all in particular that it is that we're calling a cup. Same thing is uh, certainly true of more complex things, such as, you know, like for each of us, myself. What exactly are you referring to there? And it isn't like uh, some people understand Buddhist teaching uh, as that the Buddha pointed out that there's no self, which is an extreme. There's nowhere where the Buddha actually said that, at least, well, of course, we don't know exactly what he said, but from the earliest uh, recordings, we don't really find that, what he's pointing out and what Nagarjuna clarified about 500 years after the time of the Buddha, is that a self uh, can't be found. And what would a self have to be? Well, it would have to be something that endures, you know, that remains itself from moment to moment. If it became something else, well, then what sense is it a self? You know, so and, and there's all kinds of ways. This is one of many ways we can begin to look at this. And the whole thing begins to kind of fall apart. But still, we are in this world of uh, this and that, you and me, cups and and water and and, uh, soil and sky and all of this. And yet, at the same time, as we go in and investigate these things, as I do in the book in various ways, they begin to lose, uh, well, their substantial nature. 
And I also then try to help uh, the reader see that uh, this has a great deal to do with mind and consciousness, that the reality is of a mental nature. It's uh, sound and color and feeling and thought, but these don't really have any particular substance behind them. So when you say that something doesn't have any substance behind it, it's sort of what you were just describing. There are multiple ways to arrive at that, right? One, as you said, is we, if we start zooming in closer and closer and closer and closer, we eventually find nothing, like you said. I mean, <laughs> that's what quantum physics is sort of saying. Like, there's nothing there. You know, even if you stay yeah. as simple as that, you know, energy equals mass, uh, you know, squared, right? You're like, well, okay, it's so at the end of the day, it's just but what, what's energy? Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, I think that's one way in. But, but I, I don't go so far as to say nothing. We never get to nothing. It's just that what you get to is it's something that you can't get hold of. Yes. That's what we have. That's, that's the fabric of reality is of that nature. It isn't nothingness. Mm. Is that, but you'll never get hold of it. And one of the core ideas in your work, as I was saying to you before the call, I've noticed in, in all your books and shows up again here is the idea that the reason we'll never get a hold of it is the minute we start trying to get a hold of it, we start applying concepts to it, which a concept mm-hmm. cannot define or describe reality. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> but we believe it does. And, uh, and until we begin to wake up to the fact that, uh, no, we're, we're never, and that's the two truths again. We have it in concept. That's a truth up to a point. But if you pursue that far enough, you realize that you actually haven't gripped reality itself. Reality remains kind of a mystery for us which I talk about right at the very beginning of the book. You know, <laughs> Why is this the case? Well, it's because we think we can get a hold of it. And that's uh, what I'm trying to show in the book. Is, um, and this is why we can't believe it in the end, the nature of reality, because we can't get hold of it. And so it isn't that we don't believe it. It's, well, you know, we have all kinds of beliefs of things that we think we've gotten hold of. But if you stay with anything at all for a while, you start to realize uh, how much, <laughs> how well do you understand this? And, you know, when you're granting realness or existence to this or that, and or persistence, and uh, if you look carefully enough, uh, you realize it's that's never there, the persistence. And that kind of uh, absolute realness, it just isn't there. But it isn't nothing. But it has this very liquid and fluid nature, which uh, bespeaks of uh, mind and consciousness. This is what they are. And this is the nature of reality. This is the fabric of reality is, is mind and consciousness. So that's one of the things that rather than substance and, and, and then we keep looking for how do we get mind and consciousness from substance? How do we get the electrochemical processes in the brain to yield a subjective experience? And yeah. in the book, though, I identify that as the impossible problem. It's not just hard. It's, it's impossible. You're never going to show that. Yep. I'm going to read a line from the book that I really like, sort of talking about this mind thing. You said, you hear a bell, smell a rose, see a bird. Where does seeing, hearing, and smelling happen? In the bell or the rose of the bird? In the sense organ that picks it up? In the space in between? In the neurons of your brain? Remove any bit of this and there's no experience. So where is it happening? And I think that's such a great description of... You know, when we talk about mind, what are we talking about? Mm -hmm. Because where does it end? Yeah. (laughs) Or begin, (laughs) for that matter. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, that's uh, one way in in which, too, it it shows itself as not being something that you can grasp. 
Because if it had a beginning or an end or had boundaries or, or uh, surfaces or something like this, you'd be able to get hold of it. But as we investigate any of these things, uh, we begin to realize that the smell of the roses could be very distinct if, if this is what you're smelling now in this moment. And you see, well, there's a rose there across the room or something. And, you know, and so we're giving it location and, and this sort of thing. But as you start to think about, well, where, where is this experience of the smell taking place? We might say, well, it's in my nose or, yeah, but, but it's up that rose over there. And, uh, you know, and there's various ways we just keep asking questions and investigating what it is we're assuming. You'll start to realize, and this is true of virtually everything that we experience in terms of substance, this and that. If we continue to observe these things, you begin to realize you cannot get hold of anything. This is the beginning of awakening. This is the beginning of actually seeing the true nature of what is taking place here. And with that, there's a great deal of freedom of mind and ease <laughs> that otherwise uh, might be uh, quite elusive you know, for us to find. Girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. 
I wanted to maybe go the direction you just sort of went there a little bit, which is to bring this back to a personal sense, because one way of hearing the last 20 minutes of you and I talking is who cares? Like, so what? If I don't care about why there's something rather than nothing, uh, you know, it seems like an interesting question to ponder. But for my day-to-day life, why does this stuff matter? Yeah. And uh, in the sense of trying to bring you to some point where you can grasp this or that, that would make you feel better or or fulfilled or, you know, this is meaningful for me or, or whatever. That's fine. But see, that none of that ever lasts. We constantly have to go get some more or defend ourselves better against uh, whatever uh, might be seemingly attacking us now. And that's right. What we're doing with this is it's uh, I'm not supplying any answers in the book. I'm not telling you what it is you need to think or believe. In fact, I'm I'm asking you to constantly question whatever it is you you do settle down with. But what you'll find in, in, in time when you really, truly can let go of the various things that we otherwise are constantly reaching for and grasping, <laughs> you'll find a kind of freedom and an ease of mind and a relaxation. Uh, I don't know. Uh, we're, we're at ease in the world rather than fighting with it. And this is, uh, well, is that valuable to you or not? I don't know. <laughs> but if you turn that into something, then it's kind of like, well, now you're, you're grasping again. So we don't have to do that. But I would say to have a mind that is peaceful and present and isn't locked in all kinds of confusion and, and wondering, and where did we come from? Where are we going? What happens to me after I die? <laughs> all these big existential things, that can all be eradicated, not by finding answers to, uh, to these questions, but by seeing that the questions themselves are kind of derived from a misunderstanding of what the experience is in the first place, the experience of just this, life. You wrote once, the deep hollow ache of the heart arises from a life in search of meaning. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So say a little bit more about that. So you're describing a very specific experience, the deep hollow ache of the heart, because I'm out there trying to go, what is the meaning of life? And once we get to that, the meaning of life, then we're starting to get to these bigger questions, right? We're all of a sudden going, well, why? What's the point? Yeah. So talk about, can we resolve that? If so, how do we resolve that? Yeah, we can resolve it, but we can't resolve it by pursuing our normal way. We're actually trying to get to an answer. It's like that question, why is there something rather than nothing? Well, we can start to see that this isn't, in a sense, this isn't even a legitimate question. Because as I was pointing out, if we look carefully, we don't really seem to have something. And yet this is not nothing. <laughs> but what we do is, is when we're trying to get to uh, answer that question about the meaning of life and this sort of thing, <laughs> We're constantly looking for something we can put there. Every now and then we might come upon something where you think, aha, now I have it, this is it. But uh, now you have to defend it against other people who might have a different view of it or thought of it in a different way than you had. and Or else we can just isolate ourselves in some way and live in some kind of blissful ignorance. But it's still, we're holding to something which doesn't supply us with any kind of support. But if we wake up to the fact that you don't need that kind of support at all, right from the very get-go, you don't need that, there's a great freedom, you know, that comes with this, uh, an unspeakable freedom. But we can feel it, we can know it, we can realize it. That's why our normal pursuit of uh, we're trying to answer the deep existential questions, looking for answers is not where to go, Yeah. but starting to realize the uh, kind of the emptiness the lack of substantiality within the questions themselves. And seeing that, rather than being, oh my God, no, everything's going to 
fall apart. That's not true. You'll realize that you've been free all along. Yeah, I often think about finding meaning, and I, I make this analogy, which I'm not sure whether you would think is a good one or not, but trying to figure out meaning through the mind doesn't work. It's like the example I give is imagine I walked outside my door and, you know, I live right by a road and I saw a dog that had been hit by a car and it was laying there suffering, right? If I try to argue why me taking care of that dog matters, I can't really make a good ultimate argument because eventually you get to, well, you're just one person and it's one dog and there's billions of dogs and suffering is endless and you're just a planet floating in the middle of nowhere and on and on and on. There is no resolution. Right. <laughs> but in yeah. that moment, you could not argue me out of believing that taking care of that dog was important yeah. because that emerges from someplace beyond a rational meaning. It's a response of the heart that just happens. I couldn't convince you why it's meaningful, but you could not convince me it was not meaningful, right? Because it would just appear to me. And, and that's how I've often thought about this idea of trying to find meaning by asking rational questions, is that that's not where you can find it. That's right. Yeah. The fact that stopping to help the dog, and you'll do it. And it isn't because, uh, I don't know, well, it could be because you think, well, this is uh, right. This would be what a good person does. And you can have all kinds of rational you know, thoughts like that. Your, your heart is also going out for the suffering of the dog and, and all of this. What is important here, and this is really the true form, uh, basis of morality, really, which very few of us ever find, it's not in rules and regulations and thou shalt and thou shalt not and this is what a definition of a good person or a bad person. It is in acting and seeing things in terms of wholeness, in terms of totality. And uh, it's like with the two wolves at the beginning. And that's why I said, feed them both. We don't throw one out or something. <laughs> but watch what you're feeding them, you know. Kindness is something of the whole. The opposite of that is something of the part or the self or the this uh, faction against that faction. So... In helping someone who's suffering, or a dog, an animal, it doesn't matter, a plant even, uh, that's suffering in some way. This is action, and if your heart is there, th your heart is with the whole, and with taking things as a whole. It isn't because it's right or wrong, or because we can start to argue about these things right. and try to justify it now. There's nothing to justify. You're acting out of wholeness, and uh, the kindness extends to everything. <laughs> yeah. Even the air around us, you know, and the earth. You live in a radically different way, and your heart and mind are at peace. And uh, I wouldn't say that, well, this justifies then uh, being kind to animals. There's no argument for, for that. Also, sometimes you're in a situation where it's not really clear what to do or for whatever reason, you might not act here where you did there, and if then if you ask yourself, you well, why why did I do that? I wouldn't spend too much time with that. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's just because uh, you know, you're not going to come up with an act. You're not going to get something you can grasp there. Um, you're just going to make your head spin. <laughs> uh, but it's just in your heart. We can learn to keep our heart open to to everything, to the whole. That's to treat with kindness. That's why I said at the beginning to the treat the, uh, the so-called bad wolf. Well, yeah, well, treat them both because it's hard to distinguish. How do you know for sure you got the bad wolf there? But if you treat everything with kindness, and the word kind it comes from you know we're referring to our own kind. It's how you would treat uh, those who are of your own kind. But if you can let that sense of what's of your own kind extend to everything, and you're there, and there's no no need to justify anything. 
and the understanding of why you feel peaceful and calm and more at ease in the world than you would have otherwise becomes readily apparent. One thing that you say very often is you make the distinction between perception and conception. Yeah. And that that distinction is a big one, is a really important one. Describe what each of those are and what is so important about being clear about what's going on there. Yeah, well, perception is, it's more subtle than this, but the easiest way to talk about it at first, but it doesn't quite capture the whole thing here. But perception is basically, you know, what we take in through our senses. There's all kinds of problems with me saying it that way because there's, then there's I and me and my senses and that. And that okay. But just to kind of get us into the general ballpark, that's what we're talking about here. But the thing is, we'll take whatever sense object is appearing in the mind now and uh, we'll start to conceptualize about it. First of all, we'll turn it into a thing, into something that seems to have substance and and it is a particular thing and that sort of thing. I use the example in the book where, say, uh, I don't know if it's a common experience, it, it has happened to me where I'm, I'm off in you know, some distant place or something and then I hear uh, some kind of a rumbling sound and I wonder, was that thunder or, or was that a plane I heard in, in the distance or something like that? And the perceptual experience is that, well, there's that sensation and I don't even know if I want to call it sound. But immediately, we try to conceptualize it. Well, was that a plane or was it, you know, thunder? And then we start to go with that. And what cannot be doubted is the actual perceptual experience. But when we conceptualize it, now it was a plane. Well, that can be doubted. And you might be mistaken. But we cannot be mistaken about the perceptual experience. And uh, so there's a, a subtle difference there. Well, it might be subtle, but it's also huge in terms of how we might react to things. It's important to make that distinction. There's a much, there's a great deal that comes uh, <laughs> from that. And all of our suffering, our human suffering is tied up in the way we conceptualize the world. And uh, if we realize that this is just our take on the world, it doesn't necessarily have to be wrong or, or right or anything like that. Uh, it's hard to justify that and you go in any direction. But we do need to conceptualize our experience in order to function in the world. So it isn't like conception is bad. And here's where, uh, you know, belief comes in then too, where all of a sudden uh, my take on the world is correct and right and I believe it and I'd lose everything if this weren't true and, you know, all the kind of worries and frets that come about. And it's a kind of insanity. But it captures most of us unless we just wake up to the actual fluid nature of what is being experienced here. There is this sensation of, say, a sound. Do we have to uh, name what it is? Well, maybe we do, if, depending on what situation. If it's, uh, say, you're in some uh, jungle somewhere and it could be a big cat that made some sound, it might be good to, to distinguish that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so I'm not saying conceptualizing is, is out of the question. But we have to realize that whatever uh, we conceptualize isn't necessarily um, the way things are. If we don't look at this carefully, we'll be lost to that. And uh, we freeze ourselves into a particular viewpoint or a belief system or something like this. And virtually, I won't say all human suffering comes with it, but that's a great deal of it right there. And there's no basis for any of it.
Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You said earlier that seeing things more clearly, or if we were to see things clearly, would relieve all the existential human suffering like that. But that doesn't relieve all suffering. It relieves the suffering of a type. Is that sort of your feel or your belief on it? Or I guess it depends how you define suffering. Yeah. If there's some uh, deep disturbance in the heart and the mind, this is coming from, you know, holding on to some delusional, uh, you know, thought of, of some sort. To the extent that we can be freed from this and relieved of this, we'll be uh, relieved of a great deal of suffering. And what's important about this is that with that, now our mind can settle down. And with a quiet and settled, a tranquil mind, we can more easily see the nature of uh, what is actually taking place here. Now, this is sanity now, to the extent that we can truly see what's going on. Uh, we'll be perfectly sane. But to the extent that we're caught up in what I believe about this, what I think about that, what must happen, how I, now, now we're kind of heading down the road of insanity. Yeah. It's important to wake up to this. uh, (laughs) Well, wake up to the fact that whatever it is you're gripping isn't ultimately true. Here's the two truths again. It might be relatively true. It might be functional and useful in particular circumstance. But ultimately... There's a freedom beyond that. You say somewhere that the difference between a Buddha and an ordinary person, the difference is not in perception, it's in conception. To a Buddha, to a person with right wisdom, there's no and I think this word is key, there's no habitual overlaying of perceptual experience with concepts, with ideas, beliefs, notions, preformed habits of thought that are used to explain experience. And I think that the really important word there is habitual overlaying, because as we've said, Mm -hmm. putting things into concepts and forming things is a useful thing in certain cases. But in most of us, we don't even know we're doing it. It just happens like that. And so the (laughs) the difference is in being able to choose or maybe to move more freely between conception and perception. Yeah, well, perception is always there if we turn our attention to it, but we have to learn to recognize it and see just what that is. And it is always present. The conceptual take isn't. They come and go. And the conceptualizing mind can actually go quiet. But the perceptual aspect, it is very quiet, but it doesn't 
go away. To the extent that we can start to wake up to what's going on there, we can um, calm ourselves when we're in a situation of great stress. It's just a very healthy-minded way to go. But I want to say all of this without implying that our conceptualized uh, versions of things are bad or wrong. I wouldn't say that. They, they, they can often be mostly, probably, very useful and functional. They can also be uh, pernicious and uh, bring a lot of suffering into the world, too. But it isn't a matter of trying to get rid of these things. Or like getting rid of the uh, the bad wolf, you know. <laughs> no, just take care of these things. But the sanity with which we can take care of these things is coming from that mind which is open to the whole. And this would be more resembles the mind of uh, perception. There's a debate in spirituality between a sudden awakening and a gradual awakening. Yeah. And mm -hmm. as we think about this idea of what causes us to be not awake is this layering of conception, right? Continuing to layer mm -hmm. on conceptions. Yeah. Are there degrees in your mind of being closer to awake because I'm doing less conceptualizing? With awakening, it's not relying on the conceptual at all. So in the realm of conceptualizing, yeah, there's here and there's there and there's you and me and uh, all of this sort of thing. And this is relative reality. Everything's uh, moving around a bit. But what we're talking about is waking up, getting a full-blown understanding or realization of the perceptual experience. Since we're already there and we've been there all along, mm -hmm. <laughs> there's no way of approaching it or getting close to it or anything of this sort. Those kinds of terms, approaching, moving, getting closer, that all belongs to the conceptual. Mm. And uh, you can't really apply that then to, well, can I get closer to the perceptual? No, not really, because you're already in it. <laughs> you can't get any closer than that. That's why we talk about waking up. We don't talk about figuring it out. Right. Uh, or, you know, it's just a matter of seeing it. But if we use the analogy of, let's say, a diamond, right? The diamond's there. I'm already awake, right? But it's covered in things, you know. Mm -hmm. But it would be covered in this analogy. I think what it would be covered with would be our concepts, our right. ideas. Right. And as a result, we don't notice the diamond for what it is. Yeah. I wonder to the degree in which there is, instead of four inches of dirt, there's an inch of dirt, right? We're <laughs> scraping away. Yeah. But, but I do agree. Ultimately, you know, Zen practice describes it often. I've had some experiences of it. There are moments where the whole veil sort of falls away. Yeah. Mm -hmm. To the extent that we uh, keep playing with the conceptual, we kind of deprive ourselves of that. Mm. And, it, and it isn't, again, like we have to get rid of the conceptual. There's literature that speaks that way, you know, but I wouldn't. I, that's going too far. Yeah. But it's just at some point, realize there's something very quiet that's going on all the time that we're not paying attention to. And to the extent that we can suddenly open up to that, that's when these moments of insight might strike. Not necessarily in every case, but that's what we're opening up to. It's available to all of us at any time. And if you can get the mind to settle down, be quiet, get a little tranquility there, <laughs> it could you know, finally open up widely for us. If once we actually see this true whole nature of reality, then things won't be the same after that. We'll go back into the conceptual, but with a different understanding than we had before. Yep, for sure. So I wanted to talk with you a little bit about koans, because koans are a way, it seems, of moving away from the conceptual. And yeah. I wanted to read something you wrote about koans, and then maybe we can discuss them. But you said, people think of koans as riddles or problems that need to be solved. But that's not the case at all. 
With every koan, the point is not to arrive at an answer through our ordinary conceptualizing minds. Rather, the point is to see for ourselves that our concepts can never provide us with a satisfying answer. And I think that's such a great definition of how koans work. Yeah, they uh, throw us back into uh, that space where we really can't grasp it, which we find frustrating at first. You approach a koan and it just seems uh, inscrutable, you know, it's just... You can't identify anything there or read anything into it. But that's because we'll approach it with our conceptualizing mind. But we actually have the mind that sees it all right, all along. And really what it sees is that there's not a problem here. But when we grasp, uh, we'll see it as a problem, that there are problems here and things that need to be figured out. Yeah, But we don't really get to the end of what the problem is until we can see that we're gripping something that doesn't uh, hold up, doesn't make sense. It isn't really a part of the world. It's something we've imagined. So in your work with koans, do you still, you know, as a senior teacher, still work on koans yourself as part of your practice? Yeah, well, my tradition is Soto Zen, which is different than, say, Rinzai, where Mm -hmm. they would uh, use koans uh, and you'd assign koans to uh, students to help bring them along and you go from koan to koan and this sort of thing. In the Soto tradition, uh, we spend more time just looking at the different koans and the teacher would work with them by just uh, discussing the koan, looking at the koan, and uh, rather than turning it over and saying, okay, you, <laughs> what, figure this out? I don't know. <laughs> I'm not Rinzai, so I, I don't know what goes on there. In Dogen Zenji, who was a great teacher from the 13th century, but Soto Zen to Japan from China, his approach to the koan, his approach to everything, and he doesn't see things in terms of that we're going along some kind of graduated course. We, we move from one step to another and to another. Mm-hmm. It's more a matter of we study this, we look at this, we steep in this. At some point, the shackles may drop away, and we finally realize where we are and what's going on. And so it's, it's, uh, it has more of a flavor like that. But uh, we'll use the koans in the way I use koans most of the time. On occasion, I have assigned a, a koan or two to to somebody because there might be a particular thing there that it would help them if they could see it themselves. I don't want to tell them what to see. They have to see it for themselves. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, most of the time when I'm teaching with koans, uh, I'm just lecturing on the koan and pointing out there's all sorts of things that are going on here and different ways of looking at our experience that we might, uh, you know, habitually, uh, you know, fall into. And, um, you know, so that it, we, we use it in a different way of that sort. I gave a description of kind of the Soto uh, approach to this, and I wrote a, an introduction to a, a book. It was uh, the Iron Flute. It's a collection of um, Soto uh, koans, <laughs> a Soto collection, which is unusual. Yeah. And uh, uh, that came up with Tuttle uh, back, I don't know, around the year 2000 or so. Oh, actually, at, at our center where I teach, uh, on our website, you can find it uh, if you go there and you can look at texts uh, that are there. I forget the title of it now, but it's uh, but it's on koans, and it, so it'll give you a kind of a, a Soto take on koans that's a bit different from the Rinzai, which is more commonly known the Rinzai style. The tradition I've been studying in is white plum, so it's it's a little of both, right? It's I, I'm not sure what what am yeah. I getting exactly. Yeah, that, you know, I'm getting some Soto and some some Rinzai. So yeah, well, that that was from uh, uh, Mizumi Roshi, I believe. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. so and and he was trained in both. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah, definitely koans were a big piece. Yeah. I want to talk about, there's a phrase in Zen that I've always loved. I don't know what order these are commonly said in. The way I always hear it is great faith, great doubt, great determination. You write a little bit about great doubt and you say great doubt is not like ordinary doubt. Yeah. Share a little bit more about, you know, when we're talking about great doubt, what do we mean? Normally, doubt is, well, it is, it's, it's, it's a counter to belief. And uh, so we believe this, yeah, well, if you believe this, well, now there's room for doubt. Doubt will be there. It might be very minute and you don't notice it, you know, but it's kind of the opposite end of the balance scale with belief. And the doubt could increase and uh, and actually take over. So there might still be a little thread of belief left in there. Uh, but this is when we're doubting kind of ordinary things or uh, not just ideas and thoughts, but also, you know, people and... and uh, <laughs> Uh, and even objects of various kinds that we might, you know, can begin to doubt. Like, here again, I have this cup in front of me here. I can begin to doubt the realness of this cup in, in any number of ways. But uh, great doubt does come with that question of why is there anything at all? You know, you know, why is there something rather than nothing? Which I believe was originally voiced by uh, Leibniz. But I first learned about it through uh, reading uh, Bertrand Russell, as I pointed out in the book there. But um, for someone who actually tastes this, say you're out on a starry night, it doesn't have to be anything quite like that, perhaps. But you look up at the vastness of the sky and and the, the stars and all of this. At some point, it could overwhelm you. Like, what is, you know, why, why this at all? How can anything be, you know? And uh, when you get to the point where you, you even doubt the hand in front of your face, I mean, truly doubt it. You truly realize, you see that there's no reality, no substance to it. That's great doubt. But then what you need to see, hopefully it won't take too long, you realize, yes, but there's a hand here. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so uh, with great doubt, it doesn't destroy everything momentarily, maybe. And then everything is kind of recharged but in a radically different way. That's what was kind of depicted in that uh, phrase of, uh, you know, be, before I studied Zen, mountains were mountains and rivers were rivers, and then I studied this stuff. <laughs> mountains are no longer mountains, rivers no longer. If you can move from that one quickly to the third one when you realize, but there's, there's a hand here. Yeah. Even though you realize there's no hand, there's no particular thing that's the hand, and yet here's a hand. Now there's a, a full awakening, and we've broken through the great doubt. And uh, we also uh, uh, now can understand the nature of mind and consciousness, and that what is being experienced here is is just that. As Wang Po, great Chinese and master, said, "There's only the one mind besides which nothing exists." And from the way that's written, I can tell he saw this. He realized this himself. And we can experience that great doubt and break through. This is what we'll realize. This is what we'll see. And there won't be any question about it. Well, I think that is a beautiful place for us to wrap up with that idea that, uh, you know, we can see for ourselves. We can see for ourselves. Yeah. Well, thank you, Eric. Yeah. Thank you so much, Steve. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. Yeah, it is. I've, I've enjoyed it very much talking with you. If what you just heard was helpful to you, please consider making a monthly donation to support the One You Feed podcast. 
When you join our membership community with this monthly pledge, you get lots of exclusive members-only benefits. It's our way of saying thank you for your support. Now, we are so grateful for the members of our community. We wouldn't be able to do what we do without their support, and we don't take a single dollar for granted. To learn more, make a donation at any level, and become a member of the One You Feed community, go to oneyoufeed.net slash join. The One You Feed podcast would like to sincerely thank our sponsors for supporting the show.